This podcast is brought to you by the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. For more, check out our website at ADST.org. ADST, American Diplomacy, Warts and All. Today we'll hear from Alan Eastham, who was interviewed on July 29, 2010. He was the Principal Officer at the U.S. Consulate in Peshawar from 1984 through 1987, during which time the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. He discusses the resistance fighters, dubbed the Mujahideen, who aggressively fought Soviets. Also listen for mentions of Charlie Wilson, a Texas congressman who visited the region several times and was critical to the Afghan war effort. Without further ado, here is Alan Eastham. Well, I went to Peshawar in August of 1984. I went from the Indian desk to be the principal officer in Peshawar, Pakistan. Okay, you were there from when to when? Uh, from, for three years, from 1984 to 1987. When I got there in 1984, um, we were in a, uh, in, in a situation where the Soviet, Soviet Union had sent its troops into Afghanistan in December of 1979. Um, we had gone through the uh, last couple of years of the Carter administration with the famous uh, Z.L. Huck uh, uh, response to Jimmy Carter's offer of a small amount of assistance by say, where he said peanuts, which was nifty response to Jimmy Carter. The Reagan administration came into office in, in, in uh, when was it, 1983, and uh, they decided to confront the Soviets more aggressively. Okay, yeah. Um, the, uh, the, 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 there had been a, a support program for the Afghan resistance to the Soviet invasion uh, since the Carter administration, but the, uh, the, 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 <laughs> the Reagan administration uh, stepped it up substantially um, and in uh, large measure. Uh, because of the, with with the active uh, encouragement and even some bullying and uh, intimidation by Charlie Wilson. Uh, there was a congressman. There was a book and a movie called Charlie yeah. Wilson's War. Well, I knew Charlie quite well. You know, he just died last a few months ago. But he, uh, I knew Charlie came out three or four times while I, in the three years that I was in Peshawar. And I got to know him quite well, and uh, he's a, he was a quite an interesting fella. Uh, but he, in his personal life, and and in the unique position that he occupied in Washington, uh, but the the what was going on in in I guess August of uh, of 1984 when I got to Peshawar was uh, the, the 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 war was in full swing. There were seven recognized uh, resistance organizations. I can use the word mujahideen, but that, word's in, in, that word means a different thing in 2010 than it meant in 1984. It's a completely different. The meaning is completely different. But the, there were seven resistance groups. Uh, my job, as I perceived it, uh, was to... Uh, to to maintain contact with all these groups and to try to provide a a shall we say a diplomatic entry into uh, what these guys were up to what they were thinking about and particularly how their politics worked 
uh, as distinct from the the information that was available in other channels, uh, where you had uh, one of those, you had a situation where uh, you had people who were running a substantial program of assistance to these guys, who were also reporting on their successes and failures, and it is the nature of human beings that if one is responsible for a successful program, what you, if, if your job is to make a program successful, then what you report on is its successes. You don't talk about its failures or what doesn't work. And so uh, we, uh, we, the, my, my job was to get to know these guys. My Pakistani uh, sidekick out there, my friend and highly valued colleague, uh, Dr. Masood Akram, uh, always chided me for not paying enough attention to Pakistan. Uh, that I was not, he used to tell me basically I was not doing my job with respect to the the nuances of the Northwest Frontier itself. Um, and I spent way too much time thinking about what was going on in Afghanistan. Uh, but uh, uh, the priority of Washington was clearly Afghanistan. Washington didn't much care about the Northwest Frontier. We had a, that was a very small post uh, there were there were basically um, when I got there basically two of us um, and a secretary. There were two officers and a, and a, and an office assistant. The other officer was Margaret Scobie, who was presently the ambassador in Cairo. Um, she's done very well. Uh, and uh, our job was the normal consular stuff. We did visas. We did passports. We did uh, did that stuff representation to show the American presence in the Northwest Frontier and the Afghan peace, um, which was uh, the most interesting by far of everything we did. Um, there were, we got frequent visitors. There were um, uh, a couple of million Afghan refugees in the frontier province at that time, uh, which generated great interest uh, in uh, senior officials to come out. Um, I had, uh, we had a visit once by, well, the Attorney General came, uh, Ed Meese, uh, at the time. We took him up to the Khyber Pass. Um, the, uh, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs came out, uh, the, the CODEL after CODEL after CODEL. Uh, so we had, a, we were, for a two-person post, we were very, 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 very busy. Uh, later on, we started to add personnel. Um, the about 1984, the Congress decided to uh, authorize a substantial program of cross-border humanitarian assistance, wherein we were supposed to try to deliver humanitarian aid into Afghanistan. Uh, I believe <coughs> that the idea behind that was to. Uh, sort of soften the military aspects of what we were doing to push the Soviets out of Afghanistan. But uh, I th I, uh, it, it became quite substantial, and that brought in quite a few American NGOs 
it brought in uh, a couple of a new person with USAID whose job it was to run the cross-border program. At the time, we also had a USAID office there that was uh, the and a public diplomacy office, which were sort of separate from the consulate. When we added the humanitarian assistance function, we got a lot of new U.S. NGOs who were grantees of USAID, who uh, uh, enhanced the American presence. And it was kind of a, it was sort of a Wild West atmosphere out there. You know, there was a lot of jargon, you know, let's go, uh, you know, the moods are doing this, the moods are doing that, and uh, I'm going inside, meaning to go to Afghanistan, and uh, uh, it was quite a quite a uh, an interesting mix of war stuff. Well, it, it you know it attracts what was termed the cowboys, you know people who you know uh, thrill seekers and and operators. Uh, when things are sort of open up, I, I used to see this. I was in Saigon for 18 months. And yeah, it was a. Well, we had there were lots of different kinds of people. We had to, there were medical workers and people people who just did the you know who just came for the adrenaline rush. Um, several, quite a few, not very stable people, uh, but. Uh, it's a fascinating time, and the frontier itself in those days was uh, fairly easy to get around in. You could do some spectacular stuff if you got permission. You know, you could ride. You could ride the train to the to to the Khyber Pass. You could uh, uh, drive up to the Khyber Pass. We used to take visitors to the Khyber Rifles uh, Mess for a nice lunch. Um, How about the? Uh, uh, Codels, congressional yeah, delegations. Yeah. Codels, but the mess, you mean, uh, this is a military outfit, the Khyber Rifles. Yes. Or a, pa or a Pakistani That's right. uh, the, frontier force. And their their headquarters was up up in Lundy Kotal, right on the border, uh, well, above the border. And uh, they, they, they put on a nice show with tribal dancing and swords flashing and mm -hmm. uh, uh, goat on a spit. Yeah, but uh, the, the the there was a lot to do. We, of course, that's all closed off now. I recall the day that the first uh, stingers were used against Soviet helicopters in Afghanistan. So I didn't know anything about the Stinger program. I had no knowledge of the covert uh, program. Explain what a Stinger. Stinger is a heat-seeking, heat-guided surface-to-air missile which was highly controversial at the time it was introduced, but Charlie Wilson bullied it through. The Reagan administration decided to provide stingers to the Afghan resistance because they were uh, suffering greatly uh, at, at the uh, receiving end of fire from Soviet helicopters. And there was a day, you could probably look up what day it was, it's well known now, uh, when uh, they shot down two or three helicopters at the host airport uh, in Afghanistan, the, the Russians did not see it coming. They had no idea that the Stinger was about to hit them. And uh, they, the, the results of that day were two helicopters uh, burning on the 
on the runway at the coast airport. Two or maybe three. Uh, the CIA subsequently pre presented the grip stock from those particular missiles to Charlie Wilson. Um, Charlie told me he had it, uh, that that was one of the things they had done. But it was electric in Peshawar because the, the Afghans all knew that there's something new had come. And it was something new that was going to make a difference. It was going to make the cost of that war very, very much more expensive for the Russians. Uh, and I think that was a turning point. It was about 1985. I don't know what the day was. It's, it's easily available in open source. But uh, the, uh, the, that, that was a real a, a moment when the, the Afghans were really, really up. Um, there was a there was another phenomenon at that time which was not quite so positive from the point of view of what we were doing. And that was the the importation of this new kind of Islam to the Afghans. Um, the, uh, the 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 Afghan uh, jihad. <laughs> the fight against the Russians uh, caused a great rush of arrivals in the northwest frontier province and in Afghanistan of people with a new kind of idea about Islam. And in my view it is an idea that came from Al-Ahram University in Cairo. Uh, mm -hmm. One major influential person in this was a fellow named uh, Syed Qutb, who wrote a book, more than one book. He was executed by the Egyptian government after the assassination of Anwar Sadat. But his ideas filtered through the Muslim Brotherhood and several other organizations, um, came to the only place in the world where jihad was being fought, and that was mm -hmm. Afghanistan. And what you have now in 2010, in my view, is a consequence of that Afghan war and the importation of a different view of Islam than had been the case before. Now, we encouraged that. Um, the, the, it was fine with the United States mm -hmm. of America in 1984, 85, 86, 87 uh, for the Afghans to be motivated by that spirit of jihad and self-sacrifice. Um, but uh, unfortunately, in my view, what was happening at that time was that the foundations were being laid for what subsequently became um, Al-Qaeda, and which has brought us so much misery were and expense. Were you aware of, I mean, were you seeing this happen? Yes, I looked up the other day. I sent an unclassified telegram to the State Department in mid-1986. You know, there was, wasn't any email or any of that stuff. You had to communicate by telegram. And I sent it to INR, to Bureau of Intelligence and Research in the State Department, and I said, what is this? We're hearing about the takfiris and the ikwanis and the ikwanul muslimin. 
we are hearing about this. The Afghans are expressing concern about this new thing that's coming. What is this? Never got a reply, but at least I, I was on the record as asking. I remember being concerned about this new thing. Uh, it was something that was not, not, not in the Pashtun way of doing things. Um, the, the, I recall a couple of years ago when I started, when, when, when the phenomenon, the very recent arriving phenomenon of suicide bombing appeared in Afghanistan, I remember thinking how absolutely inconceivable it would have been in 1984-85 for an Afghan fighting the Russians to blow himself up. That would never have happened. It was not in the culture. And now we're seeing it. It's all over Afghanistan. It's happening in the tribal areas. It's even moved into Pakistan. Uh, and Did Osama bin Laden cross your radar? No, he did not, ever. Um, I, I was there in that period, you know, and I when he is supposed to have been around. In fact, I spoke to a reporter the other day who told me that uh, he was writing a New Yorker article about uh, that period, 1987 period. And uh, he told me that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was in, in Peshawar at the same time I was. But it was interesting. There, were, there was one well-funded Arab relief organization there um, I'm thinking it might have been Kuwaiti, or styled itself as Kuwaiti or something, but we had very little to do with them. I, I recall once I, I, know, I felt that we were not covering that part of it adequately, so I invited those guys to come over, and a couple of them did turn up. And as far as I know, it might have been Bin Laden, as you know, I don't know. There were, some, there were a couple of guys who came over. Um, I've, I felt bad about that evening, however, because it was for a reception or something, and they probably regarded a reception where the attendees were mostly foreign relief workers and international organization people as an unmitigated evening of debauchery, uh, you know, because these, this was a hard-drinking, hard-living crowd. And uh, I suspect it was a little bit uh, less dignified than it probably should have been to suit a staunch uh, Arab conservative. Uh, but we never had much luck with those guys. We had a problem communicating with them. We didn't, we didn't know a common language with these characters. Um, and uh, I didn't have anybody who could translate Arabic, and they didn't have anybody who could translate English. So. We, we were reduced, whenever we encountered one another, to sort of hand signals or something. It was a very, just as a practical matter, very difficult to talk to these guys. Were, were there Sunni, Sunni Shia battles going on? Yes, um, in, 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 at several levels. Um, the the Parachinar in particular, Kurum Agency, was a, was an area where there were two populations. There were Sunnis and Shia, and it was known for difficult uh, communal relations there. Um, 
At the time I lived in, in Pakistan, in that period, there was also an organization which was just uh, just getting started, a very nasty um, anti-Shia organization of Sunnis. Um, and their, their tactics were quite awful. They were mosque bombers and that sort of thing. It was not suicide bombing, but they would, they, you know, drive-by shootings of, of Shia in the, as they were coming out of the mosque. It was pretty nasty. Did um, you get any sort of high-level visits of people who came out and sort of looked at the Khyber Pass and I mean, from the Department of State or, uh, you know, I mean, just sort of, I won't say sightseers, but pretty damn well, close to it. it. Yeah, it was close. We, we, no, they were, they were always serious. I mean, we would put that stuff in the schedule just because it's so, it was such gorgeous, attractive stuff. And, you know, there was a purpose in going up to the Khyber Pass. So you'd go to Michni Point, which is the point overlooking the border at Torkum down the hill, and you'd get a nice uh, Pakistani major with a sand table who'd give you a briefing about the the deployment of the forces in the valley around Torkum and where everybody was, and you know you'd you'd get the latest war story from up there, and then you'd you'd go meet the colonel who's the head of the general. No, he's a colonel who was the head of the the Khyber Rifles, and then you'd go over and, you know, if in, in those days you could go down to the guns if you wanted to. Although it took a day to go to the gun market. Charlie always did it. Very few others did. Uh, Charlie would come away with a Thompson submachine gun or a... What was the gun market like? I mean, what? It's a town they sold nothing but guns and hash. They were they were they had two products for sale in that in that in that market, and it was firearms and narcotics. Um, I, th I suspect they also sold a lot of opium at that point. Where did they get their guns? Everywhere, all over the place. They had the weirdest collection of guns. Charlie bought uh, two. What was it? Those Schmeisser World War II machine pistols. Yeah, yeah. He bought two of those, and he bought two of something that I had never seen before, but it was a, 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 a drum-barreled submachine gun of some sort. It was not a Thompson. It was somebody else's well, manufacturer. Well, the Russians, this, this yeah. is their, before the uh, AK-47, yeah. this drum-barreled, uh, uh, sort of like a, uh, a Tommy gun was... Uh, yeah, Charlie Baldwin uh, was. That was sort of their standard infantry weapon. But uh, they also manufactured guns. I mean, there were perennial, you know, Pakistan's just awash in weapons. And there were perennial perennial uh, rumors that, they, that, the, that the Pakistan government was going to register and seize all of the AK-47s. And so the, my friends in Peshawar, my Pakistani friends, would go and get the guys in Dar al-Amkel to make a copy. They would dummy up a, they'd make a country-built AK-47, put the same serial number on it. Just in case uh, the Pakistan government decided to seize the weapons, they'd give them the copy and keep the real one. Uh -huh. And, uh, oh, they were, it was fascinating. There were three different prices for AK-47s. There was one price for the Chinese one in the Greece, brand new. 
There was another price for the Egyptian one in the Greece new. When you say in the Greece, in the case. Out of the case. Out of, brand new yeah. weapon. Brand new weapon. Packed as it was packed at the factory. And, you know, it's all greased up for yeah. for, mo for movement. You have to clean it before you use it. But the... And, and then there, were, there was another price for the used ones, Russian or Chinese. There was yet another price for the new one. There was a new little weapon that had just come out. It was a nifty little short thing, an AK-74. Mm -hmm. And uh, those were highly desirable. Um, I had somebody offer me AR-15s, M-16s, would you call it, the, you know, the U.S military weapon. I actually went and got the serial numbers off about 10 of those once they were offering me and they traced back to a, to an arm, a, an, a, a, a U.S. depot that was overrun in April of 1975 in Vietnam. They actually, I actually managed to persuade DOD to find out where those guns came from. And that's where they came from. They were they were over. They were they were captured by the North Vietnamese in April of 1975. And uh, it, so they came from all over the world. I mean, you could get a you could get an anti-aircraft gun. They had 12.5 millimeter automatic. 12, you know those big ones. Um, there was just everything out there. And they they were using bar steel to make new stuff. Um, there was a they make shotguns. I have a shotgun that I bought that somebody gave me, which is was made in our Adam Kill. They make little pistols, their own little 32 automatic, 32 semi-automatics. Uh, there, there was, it was, it was a manufacturing operation in addition to a trading operation. <laughs> what were your your take on? The Saudi influence, the official Saudi influence, at your time there. Uh, it it was not evident. Um, there were some uh, lead, there were some resistance leaders who were better uh, positioned to get Saudi money than others. There was a fellow still around. He's in Kabul. Uh, a fellow named. Uh, Abdul Rasul Sayaf, who was one of the seven resistance leaders, he was an Arab, uh, an Arabic scholar. He could, he's, he apparently spoke beautiful classical Arabic. Although he was a Pashtun, like all of the resistance leaders, except one, and he, uh, uh, he was able somehow to attract a great deal of Saudi money directly to him. Um, I believe that there are published accounts that uh, during this period that the Saudis were matching us dollar for dollar on the covert side. Um, you know, they, yeah, we, well, we were, you know, we were running. Did you get any feel during this time of reports about the Soviet position? What was happening with them? It was hard to say. I mean, I, I I was not following the Soviet angle on this very closely. I had enough to do following the war, and um, I th I think though that the basic uh, Gorbachev decision to disengage from Afghanistan was probably made around 1987, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there was a by they were they were certainly they left in 1989. Uh, 
and uh, there was a there, I think that they were uh, they they were trying to to disengage and trying to, they were doing this uh, <laughs> strengthening the Afghan security forces. Do we hear do we hear that in the news in two thousand ten? I believe that I believe that was the phase that the that the Russians were in at the time at the end of my time in Peshawar. Um, they were they were doing doing something very much like what one would naturally do is to strengthen the capability of the, the Afghans to do their own work. And there have been published accounts since of a conversation that that Gorbachev had with uh, Najibullah, who was the president of Afghanistan at the time. In which he basically told him, "If you guys don't hand, hand, hold up your end of the stick, you know this is not forever. We're not going to have the Russian army, the Soviet army here, to keep you in power f- till you die." Um, that was a turning point. I don't recall when that conversation is supposed to have occurred, but I believe Gorbachev uh, mentioned it in his uh, in his own memoirs uh, uh, at the time. But I, I'm pretty sure that they had they were they were on the way out the door by the end of 19, by the by the middle of 1987 when I left. That was Alan Eastman talking about his time in Peshawar from 1984 through 1987. Thank you so much for listening. ADST is an independent nonprofit organization located in Arlington, Virginia. ADST's oral history collection, begun in 1986, contains over 2,500 oral histories unveiling the horrifying, thought-provoking, and the absurd events that helped shape foreign policy. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make a tax-deductible donation to allow ADST to continue its work at www.adst.org.